We are starting, though, with my first guest, who is Sarah Medanik, who is the president and CEO of the Downey and Wenjack Fund. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, we, I know we, we first got to know, I think, um, more about the fund and more about the organization, especially when, when we participated in, in Day of Listening. I know you've now uh, put some more videos out and more information out. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement and what the foundation is doing as far as this being the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation? Absolutely. I mean, all of the work that we do at the Downey Wenjack Fund aims to build cultural understanding and a path towards reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. So all of our programming is based around building awareness, education, and connections. And a big piece of that work is both awareness and education. And the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation has served as an opportunity for many Canadians to become aware and to seek further education as it relates to the true history, legacy, and lasting impacts of the residential school system, and essentially the cultural genocide of Indigenous peoples. I was watching a bit of a video that was put together by your group. It's on the Burlington Performing Arts Centre webpage if people want to check it out. Uh, I thought it was so interesting. You had uh, this panel of people that had so much to share and and covering topics. And one of the the questions I thought, and I know it was a question that you put to one of the panelists, and I think it's a question that a lot of people had or have, and it has to do with what to do today, and not only today, but what to do, especially as a, as a non-Indigenous person, what do you do that is culturally sensitive, culturally aware, aware and also meaningful? Absolutely. I think the biggest point I'd like everyone to walk away with is, you know, reconciliation isn't going to happen in a day. Uh, you know, committing to one action on... September 30th, like wearing an orange shirt in solidarity, isn't going to make that change, but it's a start. And so I really encourage folks to take the time today to engage deeper, to increase your understanding of the true history, legacy, and lasting impacts of the residential school system, to educate yourself on Indigenous issues today, Um, Build your cultural understanding. Read the 94 calls to action. Find one that resonates with you and action that in your home, in your workplace, in your community. But most of all, stay committed and stay with us in this work to further reconciliation. It's a commitment that's going to take 365 days a year. Do you sense that there is a difference or... I don't know if difference is the right word, or at least more a more serious approach to this in that we've, we've had those 94 calls to action. We've had the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, we've, uh, we've, we've kind of known those are there, but like you said, one of the calls is to, to actually go and read them to see what's in there. Is there more of a shift uh, after what was discovered, after the discovery of the graves in Kamloops? Was that kind of a pivotal moment where there has now at least been a bit of a shift for people to actually do the work? You know, I I think that it's a start. Um, You know, there's a greater um, recognition by mainstream uh, consciousness in Canada around the true history, 
in this country and the experience and relationship with indigenous people in this country. But I think, you know, that shift, it's been a long time coming. There's been so much work that has led up to the creation of this day. And I think it's important to honor all of the work that has gotten us to this place. And, you know, on one hand, be grateful that more people are aware of why the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is taking place, but also to invite more people into that conversation. You know, there's still curriculums that don't include this part of our history, this oppression on Indigenous people in this country. And you know, our legacy schools program tries to meet that need to better support educators to be able to teach. But there's already so many that don't understand the true history and legacy of the residential school system because they never learned it. And they're going to have to take that learning on themselves. And do you think there is work to be done there? And I've even heard some people questioning that today uh, becoming a, a statutory day, that uh, it doesn't mean automatically that people are going to spend the day reflecting or learning or, or doing anything even related to truth and reconciliation and that it might have been better spent with kids in school and dedicated to a day of learning. But do you think there is some kind of way we can have this day, but also make sure, like you said, it's in the curriculum and make sure that learning goes on all of the other days of the year as well? Well, I think that we can demand better of each other. I'm optimistic that You know, this won't just be a day, but it will be a movement. It'll be a pivotal change in the way that we approach relationship with reconciliation and Indigenous peoples in this country. That, you know, we're really going to take this opportunity to reflect, commemorate, honor, and respect the experiences of Indigenous residential school victims, survivors, communities, and the multi-generational trauma that continues to be felt today. And I think that from that acknowledgement will come change. Because once the truth is understood, there, there will be an opening for a greater understanding for where the relationship with Indigenous communities is today. And once that understanding is built, that's how we can start to move forward together. You know, demand more from your politicians when you go to vote. Do you know what their platforms are in terms of Indigenous peoples and Indigenous policies? You know, we just went through an election. How many folks looked at that before they voted? No, it's a very good point. Um, Sarah, just before I let you go, can you just tell people again where, uh, with your foundation, uh, where the Downey and Winjack Fund, where can people get those resources? So if they want to find uh, the video or find other resources uh, today, today or any day, where can they access that? Absolutely. You can visit us on at downeywenjack.ca. Um, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and really take this day to commemorate, reflect, and honor, and then really dig deep and translate that learning and reflection into actions, or what we like to refer to as reconciliations, 
to further reconciliation. And join us for Secret Path Week and action those. All right, Sarah Medanik, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yesterday on the program, we talked a lot about the uncertainty when new rules come in, specifically for the United States, and that is for travelers, international travelers flying to the U.S., that will have to show they are fully vaccinated. Up until now, Canadians have been able to fly to the U.S. with a test to show they are negative for COVID-19. But there are a lot of concerns when these new rules come in, and we don't know what the exact date is going to be, but the concern is the United States is not, at this point, recognizing mixed vaccine, meaning if you got AstraZeneca and an mRNA or a different type of mix, you might not be able to go to the States. Well, a lot of people have been asking questions about this. People have been told to be patient, but is there an update? We are joined now by Richard Zussman, Global BC journalist based in Victoria. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, Very well. How about you? Good, excellent. Uh, I know uh, you uh, had a, a sit down or you were chatting with Dr. Bonnie Henry. This was one of the topics that you asked her about, and we'll find out more tonight on the news on Global at Six. But what are you hearing at this point for people who are concerned about this? Yeah, so we can get into what Dr. Henry told me. We had a long ranging conversation yesterday. Uh, I did a story for the news hour last night around rapid testing. I know that has been an issue that a lot of people are concerned about, and the province is now you know, opening the door to make those rapid tests more available. BC is last in the country now in terms of using the federal supply of rapid tests. But around the issue that you mentioned, there are a number of pieces here about third doses of vaccine. And the one that I get the most emails about is for people who hope to travel, who are concerned that their mixed doses or their AstraZeneca vaccines will limit their ability to travel. And what Dr. Henry told me yesterday is that there are still conversations going on around what a national travel vaccine passport looks like and is expecting that once there is a national framework in place that Anyone who has received a Canadian-approved vaccine will be able to get that international standard and be able to travel. There still may be issues for people when they go to a certain destination. And Dr. Henry said to me, and this will be good news to people who are worried about traveling to the United States, that ultimately, this is the quote from Dr. Henry, ultimately we will be able to provide what they need. She was cautious to say this is going to take time. This is not going to be in 2021. This is likely going to be in 2022. And BC will be watching closely. But if there are issues with mixed doses around access to travel, and she says especially to the United States, especially for those cases of people wanting to visit family and to do things in the United States, BC will be able to provide what they need. There is obviously going to be some caveats to that, but she is hearing the concern. She says she understands that in many cases the travel is important and they're not going to stand in the way. And like you said, the ask is around patience as the federal government sorts this out. And BC is very much at the table on that. Uh, But that is a good sign for people who have expressed concerns around what is going to unfold here uh, in terms of uh, international travel and, and the vaccine that people have received. 
It's interesting, uh, the wording of uh, her answer to you as well, when she again asked for patience, but said uh, the people will get what they need. But and you just touched on this. It's not going to be in place when those rules come into place for the United States. And what we've been told at this point is it's going to be early November that the United States is going to switch to the model of requiring full vaccination. But that does nothing for people who say we're planning to go and fly and see family in the United States this Christmas. Yeah, and that's one of the concerns that we have heard again and again. And the guidance continues to be, uh, we're not quite there yet. And a lot of this falls uh, on the federal government and the fact that we don't yet have a framework for what a national vaccine card looks like. Because one of the challenges with international travel is that things were done one way in British Columbia and a different way in Ontario and a different way in Quebec, and they are all nationally approved ways of administering vaccine. But when you have your BC vaccine card compared to your Ontario proof of immunization, uh, that becomes impossible for border officials and federal officials uh, to regulate. So uh, BC is working with Ottawa on this. uh, And if there are concerns from people, the pressure needs to be applied to Ottawa. Uh, Yes, uh, people went and did what they were asked to, got the first available. In some cases, they weren't given a choice around mix and matching. Uh, And all of this is our slow re-entry to normalcy. Dr. Henry has said in the past, you know, countries like the United States rely on Canadians for travel and they are not going to want to make things difficult for their own economy for international travel. But the reality is everybody is grappling through this their own way. So you're right. If, if you are planning travel in November and December of this year, there could be problems. Uh, we will see what the American system looks like. We will see what proof of immunization is required in terms of what we're given at a Canadian level, but there could be challenges for people traveling this year. And, you know, that is something that people need to keep in mind when they're starting to plan or if they've already booked those trips. I think, too, where, where people are showing a bit of frustration, and uh, Dr. Henry touched on this uh, in your interview, uh, she was talking, I think, more about traveling to Europe and that kind of international travel where you can yeah. still go there, but maybe there's restrictions once you're there, but you can still get into the country. The difference being with the United States, from everybody I've talked to, uh, they've said that if this doesn't change when those new restrictions come in, you won't even be able to get into the country. And people are making plans to to get around this when we see other provinces that are offering boosters, such as Alberta. If you have AstraZeneca and Pfizer in Alberta, they're offering up another Pfizer so you can travel, so you can do that. And I think that's where there's a lot of frustration that that's not being offered in BC. Yeah, and the argument Dr. Henry is making is uh, we need those vaccines for other people. So she mentioned uh, children will soon be eligible for vaccine. We don't know when that is. Could it be the end of October? Could it be the end of November? Uh, That is almost certainly going to be Pfizer. Uh, The homeless populations. Dr. Henry spoke to, we've seen a recent surge in breakthrough cases connected to homeless populations that BC is planning uh, to administer a third dose uh, to those populations uh, where we are seeing those with underlying health conditions getting sick. And that will require uh, a use of uh, the vaccine that British Columbia now has access to. Uh, We're also now giving boosters to those in long-term care. This is where BC is targeting the third dose. Um, 
based on the language that she used, uh, there could be some wiggle room there to ensure that those that need to get to the United States can get to the United States. I don't think she's ruled that out. Yes, you know, you and I both listened to the interview. Yes, she was speaking about 2022. But if we get into this change uh, and things are not sorted, uh, Dr. Henry is sympathetic towards that situation. So we will have to see exactly what that looks like. But I think there's a few bottlenecks there, you know, providing vaccine for long-term care, providing vaccine for the homeless population, and then providing vaccine for children, which is the big one in all of this, because, you know, that's hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, Yes, they are smaller doses, uh, but it is a high, high priority. The province wants Health Canada provides that approval. All right. Looking forward to your story on the news this evening. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Joe. My pleasure. Thanks for being with us today as we are talking more about this being the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And a lot of conversations are taking place today that have to do with language, preserving language, making sure that languages are not lost. And joining me now to talk more about this and some other issues is Eldon Yellowhorn, a professor in Indigenous Studies at SFU. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about language, and I know you've been working very hard on the preservation of of Indigenous languages. Why is it important that we make sure we recognize and preserve and save these languages? Uh, Well, I can say that there is a a looming mass extinction of Indigenous languages in Canada. And in in Canada, we can't just have linguistic diversity mean uh, French and English. Uh, you know, for example, I'm a native speaker of uh, the Blackfoot language, uh, and that is important to our identity, to who we th- uh, consider ourselves as Blackfoot people. And <clears throat> we do not, myself and my cohort, do not want to be the last generation to speak this language, you know. And I would say, too, that if we lose all these languages, our national character will be diminished for having allowed it to happen. And and what are the challenges then? As somebody who speaks uh, an indigenous language, you can speak it. But what are some of the challenges then to make sh- making sure it's preserved and, and helping others? Maybe others who haven't heard the language, haven't spoken the language before. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, because this is a novelty for a lot of people. You know, especially if they want to learn uh, to say a few words in the local indigenous language. Um, I guess it would be the equivalent of learning to write a language that has never been written before and relies on the oral tradition, you know, which is what which was the, is the case for Blackfoot. About 50 years ago, we started uh, producing an alphabet for the for the language and uh, making writing part of the, uh, the repertoire to help it save it. But um, writing does not produce new speakers, you know. And in the time that we've had. Uh, Writing is a part of our language. Um, the number of speakers has continued to decline, and part of it is, is that we missed a broadcast revolution. You know, when we first started getting radio and television and record players and movies, all of that came to us in English, and so it gave us the impression that uh, Blackfoot was not a modern language; that it was an antique language. Uh, so we we missed out on the broadcast revolution, and um, I don't want us to miss out on the digital revolution. So I'm working with some 
talented computing science uh, students and professors at SFU. And we are exploring the potential of digital tools to make machine learning uh, possible, to make it part of our repertoire. So I, I would say that artificial intelligence and robotics uh, will ensure that indigenous languages have a future. It's so interesting when you say that and the way you describe that in that even producing the alphabet, because that's got to be a huge challenge as well, that not only are we talking about a language where the number of people who are fluent in it would, would be getting smaller and smaller, but if there's not an alphabet or a way to preserve it to actually write it down, how else do you do that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, like our, our work with, uh, you know, AI and uh, machine learning uh, re- reintroduces the oral tradition into language acquisition uh, because, you know, just think about the little digital assistants that you have like Siri and Alexa. Uh, and then think of this as, you know, what if we had those voices speaking to us in Blackfoot or Cree, you know, that this would make a difference because it, it fills the soundscape of our lives and uh, gives us a, a way to interact with that language, even if we're uh, the only ones who speak it, you know. And do you do you see this happening with other languages as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, in fact, uh, we're already quite far along. We produced our first uh, Blackfoot chatbot uh, last year. And, um, you know, we had to develop some uh, software to allow this to happen. And we wanted to demonstrate that the software was, you know, its efficacy could be transferred to other languages. So uh, we've now created a Cree chatbot that will do the same thing. I wanted to talk to you as well as your work. I know you've been very involved in the search for missing children for the search of graves in Canada. We've talked a lot about the discovery of the graves in Kamloops. But can you talk a bit more about kind of what led to that? Because other work was being done much longer, much much before that. Yeah, well, I've been involved, you know, first uh, as as an archaeologist. That's my, my training is in archaeology. And uh, I began a historic archaeology project in 2006 uh, <clears throat> on the reserve where I'm from in southern Alberta, the Pagan Indian Reserve. And I ex- excavated the site of an old uh, Church of England residential school. Uh, and then this led to uh, other work with uh, with the TRC when I joined them for their Missing Children's Project. And our job for that was to uh, go back to those old schools and to uh, search for the cemeteries that were associated with them uh, and to report back on their condition. And, and uh, even then, uh, even now, I'm still using my skills as an archaeologist to, to do similar investigations. I'm the principal investigator for a project that is taking place at, in Brandon, Manitoba, with the Brandon Indian Residential School. And we're working with the Sioux Valley Dakota Nation to uh, do exactly that kind of work and to search the old cemetery and to try and reclaim the identities of the children who are buried there. And is it using the similar technology or the equipment that you've used in previous searches? Yeah, you know, we as archaeologists, we have access to a whole bundle of uh, methods that we have used. You know, for example, in, in our work at Brandon, we've used um, um, ground-penetrating radar, uh, but we also use other techniques such as gradiometry, which is a kind of a, a technique for measuring the magnetic fabric of the soil, and wherever we find anomalies, you know, we can verify them. Uh, we've also had an opportunity to use drones to uh, 
do an aerial survey, a near-surface aerial survey, because uh, sometimes, you know, lighting conditions can change through the day, and so we can find things in the morning that might not be visible in the afternoon or vice versa. Uh, so uh, we're, we're using those kinds of uh, geophysical techniques, uh, but we're also combining it with archaeology, uh, physical anthropology, uh, forensic anthropology, and we're also using uh, genomic researchers and uh, archival researchers because we want to you know, verify, 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 and, and this is the kind of expertise that will be needed to bring about a resolution to this question. How do you prepare yourself for that kind of work? When, when you know what you're looking for, you know what you could potentially discover, that's got to be difficult. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, it is a sad story, and you know, it used to make me sad, you know. And you can't set your, you can't set aside uh, our, our humanity, you know. We, we can't we can't set aside our humanity to conduct these excavations. We're still we're still people, and we still know what we're dealing with, you know. Uh, I have worked on excavating human remains before, but that always came with great antiquity, you know, where the uh, remains were like two or 3,000 years old. Right. So this is very different from when you're dealing with remains that are less than 100 years old sometimes, you know. So what we have to learn is to balance our work with the knowledge of what the outcome of our work will achieve. Uh, so we we also feel that we have a duty to to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, uh, and we tell ourselves that you know they have found one one more way to tell us details about their lives. That's a, such an interesting way to put it because I always think of that as kind of the role of a coroner as well. But when we think about it, it's not it's not all that different in that you're gathering information and trying to find out the history and, and figure out what what happened. Oh, absolutely. You know, this is something that I think uh, a lot of archaeologists who have worked at the human remains will will tell you the same thing. I, I wanted to talk a little bit as well. As we know, this is the, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It was established after that discovery in Kamloops. What do you hope or think that people should be focusing on and really thinking about today? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult question, you know, because it's so raw and so fresh. And uh, it's something that you know, people are grappling with. And uh, I can uh, use the metaphor of a journey that we have started. You know, We do not know the destination. Uh, we know that the road ahead will be, well, it's going to be long and full of challenges. Not all of us will get to the other side of this difficult journey. Uh, but we can do it. You know, what we can say is that after all the challenges we will face together, uh, what we want to ensure is that Canada will be a better country at the other end. Do you see that happening, or, or do you see more people kind of joining that walk, joining that road in hopes of, of doing exactly that, making it a better country? I hope so, you know, and, and I hope that this is, you know, is a message that young Indigenous people will take to heart, you know, and, and that they will engage with their education and, and become the archaeologists and the physical anthropologists and geneticists uh, who will be the ones to do it. You know, we can't always be just spectators watching other people do this work. All right. Well, Eldon Yellowhorn, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. I really appreciate it. It was great to chat with you. Thank you for having me.
Well, since last weekend's release of two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, there has been a lot of discussion about what happens next with Canada's relationship with China. What changes, what should change, or what needs to change? And joining me now to talk more about this is Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Director and Senior Fellow of the Indo-Pacific Program at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, also Senior Fellow with the Japan Institute of International Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Jill. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, You've written a special to the National Post. People can read it there if they want to check it out. Talking about what Canada needs to do, in your view, as far as its strategy, its relationship with China. What would you say is number one on that list? Well, I think the number one thing is that traditionally, I think we've looked at China and frankly, we've looked at the entire Indo-Pacific region uh, through a lens of how we wanted to see that relationship. So how we wanted to see ties with China and how we wanted to envision our relationship with the Indo-Pacific uh, rather than the reality of, of, of how it is. So I think, you know, in a nutshell, uh, we need to have a very realistic, uh, pragmatic, eyes wide open uh, approach to how we engage with China. And I think it's rather than sort of focusing this, um, you know, seeing the Indo-Pacific or seeing Asia essentially as starting with a sea and basically being about China and, and finding economic opportunity with China, I think we need to see the diversity of the entire region itself uh, and uh, the other partners there that are more aligned with our interests and values. And is that something that we weren't able to do or was kind of on hold while we were dealing with getting the Michaels freed and dealing with Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver? I think so. So I think that, you know, for, the, you know, frankly, this has been an issue that has caused the government some delay for even before the Michaels issue is, is trying to get a, a coherent and long term view of how to uh, manage the opportunities and challenges with China. But I think the situation with the Michaels absolutely added some delay to this. Um, and I think it obscured the thinking that um, if Canada, for example, were to develop a, a broader strategy for the Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, dealing with other countries such as Japan, South Korea, Australia, countries in Southeast Asia, that that would be seen in China as sort of a punitive measure or, or a punishment in a way um, because of the, the current situation uh, um, and the tensions between the relationship uh, of Canada and China. The reality is that's not really a punishment. It's not a stick uh, that's being used against China because of that relationship. I think the reason that we're pursuing a strategy in, in this uh, region is because it's in our interest to do so. Um, and as I said before, uh, many of these countries, uh, including Japan, South Korea and others, uh, have interests and values that are much more aligned with Canada uh, than that of China. Uh, you write in the piece uh, the, the talking about the release of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. Um, while Canada did not openly indulge China's hostage diplomacy, Canada has also done next to nothing to combat it. Uh, how significant is that? Yeah, so I mean, I think that, um, you know, we uh, did a very good job to finally get the Michaels back. But I think the challenge is that it takes more in a way than um, just having an arbitrary detention declaration. I think many of our partners, for example, uh, those in Australia, those in Japan also have citizens who are detained on such spurious charges. And I think it'll, the mantle of leadership will now be on the Canadian side now that the Michaels are home. And that's a great story. And I'm delighted for them and their families. Um, but to keep up the pressure, you know, this is not a situation unique to Canada alone. Um, so if we are really going to stand by our, our words and deeds on this, this specific issue on hostage diplomacy or arbitrary detention, uh, we need to stand up for our friends, too, uh, who are going through similar ordeals.
Uh, because I think we do tend to, for not, I guess maybe not forget, but we don't put a lot of focus on the fact that there are other Canadians, there are other people from other countries that are considered our allies that are being held there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to be very clear about the risks uh, and uh, to, to regular Canadians. And I mean, this is going to be an issue, obviously, with the upcoming uh, Olympics in Beijing. Um, but I think particularly for business individuals uh, and those who would be uh, f- focused on international affairs, I think we need to be you know, quite clear that this is not something that's just an isolated uh, issue that was caused by a mercurial American president. I think that's a narrative that sometimes gets um, pushed around that essentially Donald Trump created the situation um, that resulted uh, in, the, in the two Michaels being um, detained. But the reality is this is something, a bigger issue that has been going on for several years, even before the Michaels were taken. Um, as your uh, listeners might know, uh, you know, the two Canadians had been taken before uh, the, the Garretts in 2016 and were held in China for over two years until they were released in a very, very similar sort of situation. Uh, so this is a pattern of behavior we've seen before, um, and it's not limited to Canada. So we have to be you know, quite uh, crystal clear and aware of those risks. When you talk about it, so you can't blame it completely on Donald Trump, but a lot of the kudos has gone to Joe Biden, saying that Joe Biden did in one afternoon what the Canadian government failed to do. Is that? Do you think that's too much, uh, giving Joe Biden the the tip of the hat for doing this as well? Well, I definitely think that uh, you know the ball was in the American court there. I mean, without the American decision and the de- decision of the Department of Justice to per, uh, pursue a deferred prosecution agreement, you know, very likely, almost definitely, we would not see the Michaels uh, back here in Canada. Uh, so, I definitely think there is some credit that needs to go to the Biden administration. Um, uh, but frankly, we're also in the situation because of the Americans too. I mean, uh, you know, that by no means. Uh, um, takes away the blame from the Chinese side uh, with their arbitrary detention. That is uh, clearly on their uh, bad. But I think the whole situation obviously uh, began, I think, uh, with the um, with the American request uh, for extradition. So that does not equate a Chinese uh, uh, response that was there. But uh, I think we have to be also a little cautious on, on, uh, on thanking our American friends for this. Uh, you mentioned the Olympics that are coming up that are taking place in China. We've talked about, about on this program as well that Canada still hasn't made a definitive, uh, taken definitive action on whether or not Huawei's 5G would be involved, allowed to be involved in, in 5G in Canada. Uh, there's this, this situation with, uh, again, the Olympics going ahead. Uh, some countries have called out human rights abuses, uh, the detention and the treatment of Uyghurs in China. Are we not doing enough, do you think, as far as raising awareness and talking about those issues? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and the, the challenge will be, and I think this is, you know, one of the issues I mentioned when thinking about a strategy for the region, but also a strategy for China, is how do all of these individual pieces, and you listed a number of them, which I think are very important, how do we uh, communicate this? How do we communicate our interests and our values in, in a very uh, strategic sense? And I think this is the area that we've really failed. I think in piecemeal and tactical ways, I think we've talked about um, individual issues, but we really haven't made this uh, come out in one strategic voice. Uh, and I think that's been the real challenge. I mean, it's it's some of the, the issues that are, are real to Canada, whether it's interference or influence or obviously the issue of the detainment of the Michaels was it was a significant issue. But there are also uh, international issues. Um, you know, for example, the theft of intellectual property of, of uh, Western businesses, including Canadian businesses, uh, the coercive use of, of trade. Uh, the uh, course of uh, use of uh, trying to change the status quo in, in the territorial disputes in the region um, with many of our friends, including Japan and those in Southeast Asia. So we need to think of all of these pieces together. 
and have a, a coherent sort of strategic voice uh, going forward. And how urgent do you think is it that Canada do that? I think it's absolutely urgent. I think it was urgent, uh, you know, before the Michaels were taken. Um, you know, I think it was urgent during that period, even with the challenges of, of managing their return. Um, you know, frankly, we cannot um, resist the temptation to sort of, uh, you know, lay back now and say, okay, well, one of our objectives is, is has been achieved. The Michaels are home. Let's sort of uh, let cool heads, um, you know, think about this for a while. I, that We have to resist that temptation. Um, most of our partners around the world have already developed uh, frameworks uh, and strategies for, for this region. And Canada, as a G7 country not having one, that really, uh, frankly, is disappointing. And why is it, do you think, that that, that is the case? It does seem like the, the current government just doesn't want to ruffle feathers or doesn't want to say anything that might annoy China. Yeah, and I think there is that that sense as well. And I think some of the history, uh, the you know, corporate history and political history and legacies with with regard to China and, and changing the tune of seeing China very much as a very uh, significant potential trading partner and economic partner and realizing that those security risks that we downplayed uh, for 10 or 20 years in the past are now coming back to haunt us. I think that's one element of it. The second element is, I think, and especially this is true with the current administration, is we're, we're very tethered to our multilateralist agenda, the, the idea of you know, working with multilateral government bodies to, to meet with these challenges. That's fine, but I think the Asia-Pacific uh, and China doesn't necessarily, the best way to deal with it isn't exclusively through the multilateral realm. Uh, there are uh, ways that we're going to have to work uh, you know, independently, uh, but also with our partners that is not always through the, the biggest international fora. Um, and I think we just haven't really adapted to that and sort of accepted that that's, um, you know, a, a potential mechanism. All right. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, we'll leave it there for today. But again, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I know a lot of people are still working today. A lot of people are not working as uh, depending on what type of industry you're in, whether it's federally regulated or not, uh, that really was a factor in whether or not this was a stat for you. This is the first Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada. We've been talking about this throughout the program. Coming up, though, we are going to talk more or revisit the issue of vaccinations and mixed vaccinations and whether or not Canadians will be able to get that third shot if they are needing it to get into the United States. So we are going to revisit that issue coming up a little bit later in the program. Right now, though, this is something that we talked about just a few moments ago. Take a listen again to, these are the words of Roseanne Casimer, the chief of Tecumlips to Schwepmuck, speaking earlier today when asked about the invitation that had been put out to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to attend the ceremony and the news conference being held in Kamloops today. You know, I, I did hold out hope that he would be here today, you know, but I do know that moving forward, it's really important that, you know, he truly upholds those 10 principles, the guiding principles of working with us as First Nations. So two invitations were put out and Roseanne Casimer saying they had hoped the Prime Minister could be there. Those comments were made just a few hours before Global News learned that Justin Trudeau is actually in Tofino. He's spending a few days with family. And I think everyone can agree, everyone needs a vacation at some point. Everyone needs some downtime. But what do you think about the timing of this particular vacation? Well, let's bring back Brian Lilly, political columnist for the Toronto Sun. Thank you so much for uh, making some time on short notice and coming back on the program. 
Uh, my, my pleasure, Jill. I, I honestly wish we weren't having this conversation. Um, even though people know I'm a strong critic of the Prime Minister, uh, this is one I just wish we didn't have to talk about because he helped bring this day about and talked about it being a rather serious one. And with his actions today, you know, declining the two invitations, and I'm sure there were many, um, that it kind of makes it seem like we should all just be asking each other, so what are you doing for the Indigenous Lawn Weekend, eh? Oh, you going surfing? You want to head to Tofino? Uh, You want to have a cookout? I mean, he's turned it into a long weekend. Which and there was a lot of discussion about that leading up to it, and and I know there were comparisons made as well about Remembrance Day. In that, yes, for many people, Remembrance Day is a day off, but it's also a day with ceremonies. Many people spend time in the ceremonies, and not saying it's the same thing, but you're right, it is different. It's not just a long weekend. And there had been a lot of calls for people to not treat it that way, to treat it as a time of reflection, as a time of education. It, it, look, it should be a solemn day, and it is. I, I went by one of the ceremonies held here in downtown Toronto earlier today. Uh, there was criticism that um, the Ontario government didn't make it a, a, a full day off and a holiday. And, and I know that those debates were had. Um, you know, do you go that route or do you treat it like Remembrance Day? So, you know, every school I went by, and I was out walking a lot today, I, I went by several schools, every kid's in an orange shirt. And you know that they had lessons today where they discussed this issue about truth, reconciliation, residential schools. That's what why it's important that kids are in school in Remembrance Day. When I was in my first several years of school, it was a day off. And eventually that changed. And no, we had to go to school. And I remember thinking, I don't like this. But you you were informed. You were educated. You learned. And, you know, I saw a lot of adults walking around um, on Bay Street. I mean, you know, I'm in the heart of downtown Toronto. Please don't hate me for that. Uh, but lots of people walking around with orange shirts, orange dresses, orange ties. People were paying attention to this. It, and I don't want to say that the prime minister's not, because I, I do believe him when he says this is an important issue to him. But flying to Tofino to go surfing on the very first day of this and turning it into a long weekend, because he'll be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, cheapens it. It really does just cheapen it. And especially for this being the very first year that this day has been marked in this way. Uh, the official word from a spokesperson with the Prime Minister's office uh, confirming, saying, yes, the PM is spending time in Tofino with family for a few days. And this was because questions were being asked because on the official itinerary, it says private meetings in Ottawa. But the statement goes on to say, following his participation in last night's ceremony, marking the first national day for truth and reconciliation, he is speaking today with residential school survivors from across the country. So reading that statement, it's it's as though we're led to believe that he is in Tofino, but somehow spending the day speaking with residential school survivors. Uh, and, and perhaps he is, and perhaps he's making a few calls. His trip just sends the wrong message. You know, it was my colleague, Brian Passifume from the Toronto Sun, who tweeted out about his plane. Brian is one of these guys. You've heard of train spotters. If you've read the Irving Welsh novel or seen the movie, Brian is a plane spotter. He's a big aviation geek. And 
he had an alert pop off. He, he tracks planes. He had an alert pop off that the prime minister's plane was in the air early this morning. And he looked at it and he thought, oh, maybe he's going to Winnipeg for uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. He bypassed Winnipeg. He thought, well, maybe he's going to Cowessis as he flew over Regina. And eventually he realized where it, and, and again, he did think of Kamloops, but then once he bypassed Kamloops, he said he's going to Tofino. And of course, that is where the plane landed. It then left with the crew to go to Victoria. I think that's just the crew staying there. The PM has been confirmed in Tofino. You know, if he needed downtime, uh, he has a, a beautiful country home in the Gatineau Hills. I can tell you the Gatineau Hills is gorgeous this time of year. It's a wonderful place to be. Um, it's a private lake. It's a gorgeous cottage. It has space for him to work. Uh, lots of room for the kids to run around and all of those things. He has gone to Tofino for a surfing holiday on the day, the very first day of a new national holiday that he said we need to have and that it should be somber and that we should remember. This is tone deaf. Tone deaf beyond all beliefs. As one of my colleagues said, though, there's going to be a lot of uh, people who just say, oh, great, he deserves time off. They will ignore everything he has said about this day. Um, the folks who Jake Tapper of CNN labeled Truanon after having a run-in about Trudeau on Twitter and seeing how his followers don't care what he does. They, they love him no matter what, just like the Trump supporters, and thus he gave them the, the nickname Truanon. They will see nothing wrong with this. I am sure that there will be uh, indigenous communities and leaders across the country who feel hurt and betrayed by this, and they very, very well should. Because, as you said as well, no one is suggesting the Prime Minister doesn't deserve a day off. Of course he does, every leader does, every person deserves time off, downtime, what have you. But to do it today, on this day where he's quoted as saying, listen to the stories of survivors as we mark National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, do you think it would have been different? You mentioned his his other cottage or his other his vacation property. Had he even gone there and had an appearance, done something, would that have made a difference? You know, there is an Algonquin Reserve not far from there. He could have, because uh, there's, uh, believe it or not, there there are very few um, reserves or First Nations communities in and around the nation's capital. You have to go quite a ways out. But when you cross over to the Quebec side, where his uh, the Prime Minister's official summer residence is, the cottage... Um, he's not far from an Algonquin Reserve that he could have gone to, that he could have spent time at um, marking this day. He could have a cer- had a ceremony in Ottawa and then joined his family there. Uh, flying to Tofino? No. Um, it, it, it just sends the wrong message. But as a colleague said, you know, Canadians hold this man as accountable as we all hold the Kardashians. Um, he is a, a celebrity in his own right. And to his true believers, he can do no wrong. Had this happened even just days before the election, I doubt it would have changed the outcome. Um, The people that love him love him a lot, no matter what he does, even when it uh, flies in the face of all the words that he puts out. We had three strong uh, columns, uh, op-eds, in the Toronto Sun today on truth and reconciliation including one from uh, a woman, um, Melissa Mabarki, who is from uh, a northern Alberta uh, First Nation. And she described what it was like. She's a fairly young woman. 
And the last residential school closed in 1997, but she described her friends who were at the residential school who were shipped over to where uh, the school on her reserve and and in her community. And and these are heartbreaking stories that we should all be listening to. And on a day when that should have been marked, I I grant that he went to the ceremony last night, but he could have done something today or he just could have had a, a silent day. He could have flown out to Tofino tomorrow and, you know, people would have said, oh, Okay, so he's back to vacations. And if you remember his first year in office, he took 10 vacations that year. Um, he's toned down since then. But nobody would have been as bothered. We, you and I would not be having this conversation on the radio uh, if he'd flown out to Tofino tomorrow. But today, wrong message, wrong tone. Uh, and an insult to First Nations communities across the country. It's the timing as well, don't you think, that this is also happening a day after we saw the federal court dismiss the application uh, in the Human Rights Tribunal compensation, talking about First Nations children, saying uh, the federal government, yes, you do need to compensate these children, stop fighting them in the court system. It's not as though his record and his government's record when it comes to Indigenous people is, is pristine. It's not at all. He would have you believe it is. Um, he would have you believe that uh, the, the boil water advisory problem has been taken care of. What did he keep saying during the uh, the debates? Uh, that this was, uh, he, he had solved 109 of the 105 boil water advisories. Well, no, there's still 51, 52 um, long-term boil water advisories. There's another one that's about to turn over. Sometimes these... Uh, do not drink the water advisories, they they have to be in place for a year before they are considered long-term. And those are the ones that they really are concerned about. And so you will see some come off the list. Well, okay, the water's clean and it's clean for a few weeks and then it goes back on short-term and then becomes long-term again. This, this is unfathomable to me. There was one that just uh, in the middle of the election turned over to a long-term boil water advisory. It's between Yorkton and Regina, Saskatchewan, in an area filled with lakes where nobody that isn't on a reserve community doesn't have clean water. This is the record, not just of Justin Trudeau, but of successive Canadian governments. But he promised to change this. He promised to fix it. And Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh was right when he said, you don't take a knee one day and then take Indigenous kids to court the next. Trudeau disputed that, but they just lost in court, and his government is talking about appealing that ruling now. Well, we are, are going to talk more about this uh, for sure and find out what people are saying uh, upon hearing this news on uh, the Prime Minister flying to Tofino this morning. Brian Lilly, thanks so much for always being so available and coming on the program. Appreciate your time today. Anytime, Jill. Thanks. That is.